So, in what sense are all mitzvahs, one of the things that all mitzvahs have that they're in common is that all the mitzvahs are the will of Hashem. All mitzvahs serve to connect us to Hashem. And in that sense, all mitzvahs are equal. On the other hand, mitzvahs differ. Um, and one of the differences that happens between a mitzvah and another is the spiritual effect of the mitzvah. Okay, now, before I go on and elaborate about the idea of different effects, how the mitzvahs effect, have different spiritual effects, I want to just talk about this, this idea of spiritual effects itself. Um, and to do that, I'm going to ask you a question. How do you make mitzvahs more meaningful? What? How, how do you make it more meaningful? You do it with covenant, you do it with like an intention. Okay. Is that, uh, you can do it with intention. Does anyone have a different answer? You learn about them. Is that different than having covenant and intention when doing them? Or is it the same thing? It doesn't have to be the same. You could say it's different. You learn about the importance of it. Anyone else? Anyone else want to? Okay. So, I would venture to say that it's impossible to make mitzvahs more meaningful. Because what makes the mitzvah meaningful is what Hashem puts into the mitzvah. Therefore, you cannot make the mitzvah more meaningful. Yeah, you might be able to appreciate the meaning of the mitzvah more. And but you don't make it more meaningful. So I'll use this as an analogy, okay? Um, saving somebody's life is a very meaningful thing because the person's life has been saved, right? So the value in the act of saving life, the life doesn't come from the intent or your appreciation of it. It comes from the fact that the person's life is valuable and you did something to save it, right? Um, it would be... I think it would, be, it would be a very egotistical person to think that they can do something in terms of their mindset, their study, their appreciation, um, that makes the act of saving another human being's life meaningful, right? Because in fact, what you're doing is saying that this, the, that person's life is not meaningful enough, right? You're going to enhance the meaning by your mindset, your outlook, your intention, your thoughts, whatever it is. And this is a mistake we make in a lot of areas. So just one, another example, because rabbis are supposed to give marriage advice, right? It's a death rule rabbis are supposed to do from time to time. How do you make your marriage more meaningful? What's the correct answer? Sorry. It's, you can't make it more meaningful. You can try to live up to the meaning that it intrinsically has. You can try to appreciate the meaning that it has. And this is a very important thing to have as a mindset, is that... While it is true that we do contribute things in many respects, not everything is the product of our own mind, our own heart, our own perspective. Okay. So the value in the mitzvah, both the fact that it connects us to Hashem, which is true about all mitzvahs, and also the spiritual effect, is something that is intrinsic to the mitzvah. It has nothing to do with your mindset in doing it. If you do the mitzvah according to the halakha requirements, the mitzvah is meaningful, both in this general sense that all mitzvahs connect us to Hashem, and its particular spiritual effect will happen. 
in that sense, we can think of it much like, say, eating food. The effect of food in, in nourishing a person does not depend on their mindset. Right? If the person eats the food, their body digests it, and they get the nourishment. Okay. So there's spiritual effects of doing mitzvahs. Those spiritual effects happen regardless of the person's mindset. They just depend on whether the person did the mitzvah or did not do the mitzvah. Okay. So, does it matter then whether we have the right intention, we learn about the mitzvah ahead of time or not? Technically, no. Well, in that case, I guess I don't need to be here. I have other things to do with my time. There's no point in having a class about the spiritual effect of eating matzah if it's going to have its effect anyway. Right? I mean, it's, it's helpful for us, and the Torah was given to us for us. So. But in what way is it helpful? To bring us into, like, so that we can receive. If something's already good, but you can't receive it, then you can't. Okay, but again, even the spiritual effect of the mitzvah is going to happen regardless of whether your mind's not right. So sure, we can't enjoy it. Can't enjoy it. Ah, that's such a good answer. Unfortunately, it's wrong, but it's a good answer. <laughs> There's an explicit teaching of our sages. This is actually sometimes it blows people's mind. Mitzvahs lav lahenistinu. The mitzvahs not were not given for enjoyment. This actually has uh, halacha ramifications. That. Um, for instance, you're not allowed to benefit. Uh, you're not allowed to benefit from certain things. And the question is, well, is the mere act of doing a mitzvah considered to be a benefit? And the answer is it's not. That the mitzvahs are not, cons- are not put in the same category as, as um, things that human beings benefit. Things human beings benefit from would be like, say, for instance, food. We benefit from food. So we make a blessing on before eating because of the benefit we receive. Mitzvahs are not like that. Um, so the fact that I can enjoy the mitzvah better is like very nice, it like, you know, but that's not really a consideration of the Torah. Wait, now is what- it, Is it that we can't, is it that we are not allowed to, can't we just, can't we still enjoy something even if the purpose of it is not for our enjoyment? Can we still enjoy it? So that is a very good question. We would have to differentiate between enjoying something and and trying to pursue the enjoyment of something. Okay. If, you're do, if, you're, if you're pursuing the enjoyment of something, you're kind of objectifying and turning it a means to your own enjoyment. Sure. Not okay. such a good thing, right? Yeah. On the other hand, if you don't enjoy something that shows in a lack of connectivity to it, mm-hmm. right? So, we might want to modify what you're saying slightly to enjoy it to being able to have a, a better appreciation of it, a deeper appreciation. But then you have to ask, well, why is that so important? I mean... Other than the fact that it feels good. Other than the fact that we don't like to be pushed around. Um, and I'm not going to entertain the idea that learning about it is spilled and us to do it because there's a basic idea in Judaism that our obligation to do mitzvahs comes from our fealty to Hashem. Um, the, the basic, one of the basic lessons of the Exodus from Egypt is that we, Hashem took us out of Egypt and we became subjugated to His will and we're obligated to obey His commandments. And so while it may be true that as individual people we have a hard time with that idea, the perspective of Judaism is that our primary motivation to do mitzvahs is a sense of duty and obligation to God, not the fact that we appreciate the particularities of that commandment. So that can't be the reason why I, as a rabbi, representative of God, the Torah on earth, yada, 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 would give a class on why, on what the spiritual effect of it is. We have to figure out what is the, the interest from the perspective of the Torah, why is that important for us to learn about, other than just making ourselves feel good. Yes? So then how would we be able to serve Hashem with all our heart? If, like, 
it, whether or not, I mean, we didn't create ourselves that Hashem created us like this. And if we don't have any type of desire, I mean, it, it, it would be incredible to do a mitzvah just because Hashem said so, so we're going to do it. But to me, that doesn't seem like serving Hashem with all of your heart. Okay, that is a very good observation. So the, the, the answer to that is, is that the, the, let me, let me rephrase what I think that you're saying and tell me if I have it right and then I'll, and then I'll respond to it. If I'm doing something that I feel like I am coerced into doing or, or compelled to do, my involvement is superficial. My involvement is what needs to be done in order to kind of, um, meet that, that obligation, but I as a person am not really invested in what I'm doing. Is that what, that? Yeah, okay. pretty much. Okay. So, so the answer to, to this is that the issue has to do not so much with what we're being commanded to do, but who's commanding us. Okay. Um, for example, um, my daughter was very ill. So my wife did not particularly enjoy being in the hospital. Um, she took her to the hospital last night. She was in the hospital. Baruch Hashem to the hospital at Easter late at night. She came home. She's doing better, Baruch Hashem. Um, it would be wrong to say that my wife was not totally invested in being in the hospital with her. In fact, not only was she totally invested, like, I didn't go because someone else needs to watch the other kids, but even the other children. Um, we had to, before, before we left, it wasn't an emergency. We had to leave right at the moment, so we had time to pack a bag in case they needed to be there for a long time. All the kids, it was a little military operation. Everyone's going to get the things put in the bag. Everyone is very engaged. Everyone's very invested. Everyone's playing their part. Nobody particularly likes packing a bag. Nobody particularly likes going to the hospital, especially. Um, but because of who it was for and the importance that that person has in all of our lives, my wife's life, my life, my children's lives, Therefore, there can be a real deep investment. So, so if we look, that, that there's, a, there's a general theme in the, in, the, in the Torah that the serving Hashem with all of our heart doesn't come from having an appreciation of the things He commanded us to do, but appreciation of who He is and, so the, and, and, and what it means that He commanded us. In other words, if we understand what it is that... Hashem himself commanded us to a mitzvah and what that means about our connection and what he wants from us, then the particular act becomes almost irrelevant. So if we were to have a class about, the, about who Hashem is and what commandments are and the importance of doing commandments and how they connect to Hashem, I think that would, that would make a lot of sense, right? That would help us serve Hashem with all of our heart rather than just giving over our more superficial aspects, our ability to comply with, with instructions. But that doesn't explain why I need to have an appreciation of the specific effect of a specific mitzvah. In fact, one can even argue in that case it's actually counterproductive because I'm, I end up taking Hashem in some sense out of the picture. I make it about the act rather than about who asked me to do this and how it connects me to him. So, we still have a problem as to why we're even having this class. And if we can't answer that, we're never going to learn about matzah. <laughs> So again, the matzah connects us to Hashem just by doing the mitzvah. Moreover, matzah will have a spiritual effect just by doing the mitzvah. So why learn about that spiritual effect? So even a greater appreciation. Why do I need that greater appreciation from the perspective of the Torah? Maybe you don't. So then I can leave. <laughs> <laughs> or I should have picked a different topic, one of the two. So, so 
but I, I want to point out something that you said that, that's very accurate, is that if we understand in a broader sense what Hashem wants from us, then we're in a better position to evaluate what we should be doing, right? So you brought up the idea that we're supposed to serve Hashem with all our heart, that Hashem wants us to obey His commandments, but to invest ourselves in the performance of them, which can't happen from just simple dry obedience. So we have to have a deep appreciation for who He is and how the mitzvahs connect us to Him. In the same vein, does Hashem want us to simply have the mitzvah have its effect on us? Or does Hashem want us to have a, a, a real appreciation of that effect? Does Hashem want us to connect to Him on that level of the effect? In other words, use the example that I, I said before about taking my daughter to the hospital. That's not really a good example for a mitzvah. Because at the end of the day, neither my daughter, nor my wife, nor myself, nor any of my other children really want her to go to the hospital. That event, while it is extremely important, is something that is caused by an unfortunate circumstance. Now, let's use a different example. Um, my, one of my sons is making a siyum. A siyum is a, a celebration of completing a certain section of Torah. He's finished the tractate of sukkah, mishnayis. Mishnah, um, and so with his class, and um, they're having a, a seum celebration on Friday. Parents are invited. They're supposed to make a, they, uh, make a little um, arts and crafts. Each child demonstrating something they learned. Now, in that case, is it sufficient for me as a parent to come to his seum? and to admire the work that he did, both the learning and then the arts and crafts display, merely because this helps me bond to my son and helps my son bond to me, but not actually have any appreciation of the value of the learning itself, right? The creativity of the craft project. Is that sufficient? Does that make sense? The, 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 or, or, or is the proper thing to, since my son has invested himself in these things. He sees these things as valuable. In order to connect him, I have to also see the value in those things. Otherwise, there's an area in which we're not really connecting. Right? And you see this all the time, that when a child does something which is very hard for an adult to appreciate, such as they come home with scribbles. I have a two-year-old, and he comes home with scribbles. And, you know, you like... Now everyone's doing their little parsha sheets. You take out his little scribbles, and like, oh, there's red! And, like, like you have to make a big deal about appreciating it, and you appreciate that... You appreciate his very existence. You appreciate that he's there. You appreciate that he's happy to show you something, but it's very hard to connect to the actual artwork that he did. Whereas already you get to the four-year-old and the four-year-old is like, he's learning something. He's able to demonstrate something that you as, a, as, a, as, as an adult can, sometimes through effort, come down and appreciate the significance of what that is in his world because you, it, there's some relatability. So part of what Hashem wants as a holistic relationship, as a holistic connection, is not only that the mitzvah should have that effect, but we should value that effect. Because then the effect is not simply Hashem acting on us through the mitzvah, the effect becomes part of the bond. And that's the difference between, say, the way parents relate to infants versus, say, parents relate to adult children. When parents relate to adult children, I'm using the two extremes, the, the relationship um, is that the children's ability to appreciate or not appreciate what their parents have done for them is part of the relationship. Whereas with the infant, 
the infant has no ability to appreciate the value of the parent's care because they're an infant. They don't have that kind of an awareness. So if we wanted a, if, if Hashem would really suffice with a, with a more infantile connection with the Jewish people, it would be sufficient for us, or a more toddler-level connection, is sufficient for us to do the mitzvahs because they connect us to Him and leave whatever positive effects they have on us to God's point of view, to God's perspective, for Him to appreciate it. But if we're supposed to have a more mature connection, if that's what He wants, then we should, the same way He values those spiritual effects, we should come to value those as well because then those become a point of connection. So it's in that vein that Hashem doesn't just want the mitzvah to have its effect on us. He wants its effect to also be a point that helps build the reciprocal relationship. That's why we need this class or classes about the spiritual effect of mitzvahs. Okay? But again, the mitzvah will have its effect regardless of how much you learned about it, how much you appreciate it. What the, the only thing that affects the mitzvah's ability to affect us is the halachic compliance with doing the mitzvah properly. Obviously, if a mitzvah has different levels of ways it can be done, then if the mitzvah is done in a better way, it will be more effective. Hence the importance of eating the matzah that is of the highest caliber for doing the mitzvah. Not just because of the value of doing mitzvahs at the highest level, but also the effect will be more pronounced. Okay, now that we've spent all the time in introductions, what is the effect, spiritual effect of matzah? Okay. Humility. Humility. That's what you always learn. So, there, there are a few different dimensions of this. Um, the, first, the first dimension that I want to focus on is something that's more general, and then we'll break it up into particulars. Matzah brings about something that's called in Hebrew, bittel. The effect of matzah is that it brings about bittel. Now, this is manifest in the actual physicality of the matzah, okay? There are two important characteristics about matzah. Number one, they both stem from the same thing. Matzah is dough that isn't risen, right? Everyone knows that, yes? Anyone here bake? Okay. What is the importance of having the dough rise? Um, so the heat squares evenly. It gets fluffy. It, it, it makes it, it fluffy. Yeah. It, what? It, it makes it fluffy. Makes it lighter. Makes it lighter, right? Makes it right. Okay, that's one. That well, that is one important fact. So, for instance, have you ever eaten stale bread? Yeah. Okay. Can you eat stale bread? Can you eat stale matzah? Now, there's a tiny technical thing: is that we make our matzahs very, very, very thin to avoid this problem. So, I'm talking about matzah halachically can be up to eight centimeters thick. We do not make it that thick. Eight centimeter, it's gonna be this thing. Yeah. It would be too dense, too hard, it would be like eating a brick. It would be eating a brick. In other words, matzah, right? so for instance, the, the, the bread in the base of Migdash and on the, on the, um, on the, the, the table, the showbread, it was called lechem upon him, all of the bread in the base of Migdash was made was matzah. That bread was this thick. It was made, when? A week earlier. 
And so when it says there was a miracle that it was fresh, it doesn't mean the miracle was fresh, it was like piping hot. It means the miracle was that you could put your teeth through without breaking them. <laughs> because the reason why you can eat stale bread, bread that's like a day or two old, is because it is soft and fluffy. Now that's not the only reason for doing it, but of course, you know, that, that, is, a, that is a benefit. It makes it easier to chew and, you know. Um, the reason we make our matzahs very, very thin and very, very hard is a few hundred years old, and that's to avoid having to make matzah on Pesach. Because making matzah on Pesach is a very dangerous activity halachically, because it very easily can become chametz. And if you don't have a freezer to freeze your matzah, and your matzah is not, you know, cracker thin and hard, it will become unedible after a few days. You will not be able to eat it. So that, that we think of matzah as hard, but the essence of matzah is not the hard, in fact, they didn't rise, and that means that it is very, very dense. Okay? It's the dough as is rather than being all puffed up. What is the other effect of letting the dough rise? The other important effect. Anyone? I'm the only one here who bakes? <laughs> Taste. So, for instance, you've heard of sourdough bread? So sourdough bread has three ingredients. What are the three ingredients to sourdough bread? Flour, water, salt. Flour, water, and salt. Okay, and what makes it taste like sourdough bread? Is it the flour? No. Is it the water? No. Is it the salt? No. It's not the salt. You can make sourdough bread without salt. It just isesn't as good. <laughs> and it, and it, the, the, you have to be more than an expert of controlling the rising. What makes it taste that way is? It's the starter. What's the starter? Flour and water. Flour and water. That has? That has fermented. That's right. The ferm- because what it, what, the, 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 the rising, the fermentation process of the rising actually changes and it gives, gives bread its bready taste. Um, yeast bread tastes different than, than sourdough bread because the fermentation is a little bit different, but that's basically what it is. And so the key thing about matzah is that matzah, it is just the dough as is, both in terms of its of its actual volume and texture, and also in terms of its taste. Okay? So this gives us a sense of the two things that are opposite bittel. Right? Matzah is not, does not expand. So bittel is the opposite of being expansive. Matzah has no taste. So bittel is the opposite of having taste. So to understand what we mean by bittel in this context, we need to elaborate what is the spiritual corollary to expansiveness? What is the spiritual corollary to taste? And then bittel, bittel literally means negation, would be the negation of those qualities. Something which does not allow for expansiveness, something that does not allow for taste. And that quality is called bittel, and that's somehow a good thing, which we'll have to elaborate on what that is. Okay, so which one would you like to do first? Taste or expansiveness? No, you're not going to ask any questions this class. This class is about me pontificating and you sitting in silence. Okay. How does... <laughs> how does... How does um, being aware of a mitzvah spiritual effect connect you deeper to Hashem, though? Because if somebody, is, somebody that you care about is trying to affect you in a particular way and you don't appreciate the importance of that effect, then on that level, you're not connected. On that level, you're not in sync with each other. For instance, when a child is being educated by their parent to um, do their homework on time and the child doesn't see the value in, be that, in developing that skill, right? So on that level, instead of that, on that level, instead of being a point of connection, it's a point of conflict. 
If Hashem is trying to bring about a spiritual effect and we are either resistant or oblivious to that, then that, then that aspect of Hashem's relationship to us is entirely one side. It's from Him to us and therefore it's not a true connection. Right? When children do stuff, it's important to actually appreciate the things that they did, not just the child in more general. It's just hard to do when kids are very young sometimes. They do like... My, my two-year-old learned about the importance of cleaning for chametz in every area of the house. But the only part he remembered is chametz in every area of the house. <laughs> so we go into the bedroom and there's a bag of pretzels spread out all over the place. And he's like all very happy because chametz has to be b'chol in every place. <laughs> so, yes. so I can appreciate the cuteness of what he did. But like the thing he did itself is like not very it's hard to appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. Um, Fine. So bitl. Bitl means no expansiveness and no taste. In Hebrew, those would be hispashtos. Hispashtos means expansiveness. And taste is in Hebrew tam. Okay, which one would you like to talk about first? Because this is not just, uh, you know, me telling you the truth. You have an opportunity to participate. You can decide which of the two things we address first. It's expansiveness. Expansiveness. Okay. I wrote it first. Okay. We have to. So... So we're going we're going to approach, we're going to uh, um, do take expansiveness and approach it in two ways. The first way we're going to talk about the expansiveness of the person. What does it mean to be expansive? So has anyone ever here felt love? Emphasis of feeling love. It could be romantic love. It could be love to a friend. It could be love to a parent, love to a sibling. But the actual emotional feeling of love, I don't mean like you love the person. We all like love people. I don't mean that. I mean like you actually emotionally feel. Okay. Now. When a person is feeling love, all things being equal. In other words, obviously if there's obstacles that love being acted upon, that's a different story. But all things being equal, does the feeling of love make a person feel more expansive or more constricted? Expansive. Why? Like physically, like more. But why is that? Like what is it about love that expansiveness go together? There's certainly this sense of, right, when a person is, has, is feeling love, there's a broadness but going on, but, but why? Because when you when you feel love or love someone, you wanna like that, that. That's like a giving. It's like an openness to it. A giving. Well, uh, not always. Not always about giving. Well, there's there's an aspect of it's no longer just you. It's now you and someone else, and I imagine that. In okay. Becomes expansive. Okay. But but let's 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 take that you and someone else. Is it you plus someone else? Is it you, in other words, how do, we, how do we look at this? Do we say that it's like, for instance, if I have the water in this cup, right, and someone were to pour some oil in the cup, well, now there's water and oil in the cup. But all the oil means is, A, there's less room for the water, and B, now if I try to drink the water, I have to deal with the oil, right? So all in all, the oil is something that's interfering with the water, right? Well, it's like bringing that person into your own experience. Right, but if we... But is that really what's happening? You're really like, your experience is like this big and you're taking them and bringing them in? Or is it more the opposite? Your experience is expanding to envelop that person. Yeah, exactly. Right, so that, that's the idea, is that when we love someone, the 
other, the beloved, has in some sense become part of our experience of our own lives, has become in some sense part of ourselves, such that when we're lacking connection, closeness to the one that we love, we feel like we are missing some aspect of ourselves. That means our sense of ourselves, our experience of our lives has been broadened to encompass someone else. Okay? So love, love in its most broadest and abstract sense is expanding my sense of the wholeness of my life that encompasses and entails someone else's life to more or less degree. And that's why if that person is missing, there's, there's conflict, there's, there's, there's distance, there feels like there's a void in the life of the person who loves. Right? Isn't that beautiful? And bittel means... No love what? That. No love. Because no expansiveness and love is... That's right. I would guess that probably there's something about that expansiveness that then like brings the other into your own experience, but maybe that not necessarily negates, but it doesn't necessarily leave space for them actually being them and there. That's exactly right. Love has the negative effect of turning the other into an aspect of your life. They are not someone in their own right. In a simple observation, who is it easier to agree to disagree with? People you love or people you don't love? People you don't love. Like, you want to have your opinions, you're your problem. I don't care, right? But if my kids, if my wife, if my parents, my friends, if they have opinions that I strongly disagree with, that's very hard to accept. How dare they have those opinions? Because in some sense, by them having those opinions, some part of my life disagrees with me. There's a famous story about the students of Rabbi Akiva that they died because they didn't respect each other. Mm-hmm. And the Rebbe asks the question, which is, um, Rabbi Akiva is famous for his teaching about the centrality of loving your fellow Jews. So how could they not respect each other? The, the exact Hebrews, they did not treat each other with covet. Covet literally honor, dignity, respect. And there was an answer, well, that's exactly the point. Out of their great love, they didn't give each other the dignity to have a different opinion to understand things differently. Everyone insisted that you have to live life as I see fit and I can't just let bygones be bygones because I love you. Now the idea is not, the idea is not to the absence of love. That's not the idea. The idea is that, oh, love is bad. The idea is there's some other thing which cuts against love, right? Which is the recognition, as you put it, that the other is someone in their own right. They are who they are, not the role they play in your life. Now, if I just have tolerance for someone else, is that really bittle? In other words, like, you can have your opinions, I'll have my opinions, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, right? So there's no, like, I'm not, like, enveloping my sense of myself to incorporate the other person, so, like, okay. Is that, 
Would that, would that then be... I don't have that. Is that the bittel? That's indifference, okay? I want to address this, this from, a, from a philosophical point of view, which is, that's an absence. It's just a lack, right? If the idea is to bring about an effect is to actually instill something which is constructive, right? Psychologically, we experience that as indifference, right? But conceptually, what that means is, that means is that, that it's not, there's just a lack of any engagement at all. The bittel would be, not something which is a lack of love, but something that cuts against love. And the way that water is not the absence of fire, but it is something that extinguishes a fire. If you pour water in a fire, the reason why there's no fire is not because there's no fire. The reason there's no fire is because the water put it out. So the bittel is something substantive. What is the bittel? The bittel is the recognition of the other in the full importance they have the full significance that they have. So that comes along with an important um, corollary, which is if they're important, that creates obligations upon you. That has an effect on you. Is it okay to cut someone in line? Simple, simple now. Is it okay to cut someone in line? Why not? They're human beings who deserves right. So the, the right answer is because they're human be- they're because they're a human being. Not you could come again. Order if everyone cuts everyone in line, then society falls apart, which just means you've never been to Israel. <laughs> society somehow can work. Everyone cuts each other in line, right? That's, that's a British argument. It doesn't really hold up. No, but 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 that, no, the idea is what I mean. They, they're a person, right? Cutting them in line is an affront to their humanity. That's what makes it wrong. And therefore, the fact that a person is standing in front of you in line inhibits you if you recognize that this is a person from cutting in front of them. Now, it could be your need to get in the head of the line outweighs their need, that could be. Um, but that would have to be something above and beyond which was just my need. Like for instance, they're waiting in line to ask directions for where, the, um, where they can buy a cup of coffee, right? And um, you, need to, to, you, you need someone to call the police because someone's having a heart attack, right? But that has to do with the, the issue of coffee versus heart attack, not me versus them. So the recognition of the significance of the other, it flips the whole dynamic of love and makes it reverse. Instead of them being an adjunct to my life, now the opposite. They have taken central focus and that creates some kind of obligation or inhibition or has some kind of effect on me. Because they are who they are and they're that important, they're that significant, therefore I should or should not be in a certain way, whatever that might be. So the person doesn't love the other person. That's not love. Right? That's, so that's love as opposed, that's, that would be bittal as opposed to love. Do they feel anything? Does this come with a feeling? Does that. We'll talk about it. It can. Okay. Um, now, there's another kind of expansiveness. And the other kind of expansiveness is not the expansiveness of the person themselves, right? So love is my, how I'm expansive. I've reached my, I'm, I'm broadening and enveloping the other. But there's another kind of expansiveness, which is expanding on the other. Okay. So for instance, um, a common thing that happens is that somebody wants something from somebody else. You ever had this experience where somebody wants something from you? Yes. And... It's important to them. 
and they ask you, and you're 100% going to do it because it's important to them. But they keep talking, and they keep explaining why it's a good thing to do, and why it's important to do, and they keep fleshing it out and expanding and expanding and expanding and expanding. Why are they doing that? Why are they trying to convince you? They think you're still not going to do or do whatever. You're That's doing. right. In other words, they have a sense that the mere fact that I would like you to do this isn't good enough. The fear fact that this is important to me is not good enough. So I wouldn't say that they're lying about it, but but they're they're distorting the issue. They're 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 they're, they're compensating for what's fundamentally a lack, what they a perceived lack of bitl on your part. You cannot just accept the fact that this is important to them and that makes it worthy of doing. Now, what, the reason why they're doing that is because they perceive that that's how you're relating to them. Now, whether they're right or wrong is beside the point, but the reason why people do that is because that's generally how we are with people. We generally have a sense that things don't stand on their own merits. They need to be fleshed out. And that fleshing of it out is basically implying that it itself isn't good enough. So I'll give you an example for the bread, right? If, if the dough rises, right, it's bigger. There's more of it, right? If it doesn't rise, it's smaller. So if you see dough that's risen, bread that's baked, right? You're not seeing what's there. You're seeing how it's puffed up, right? If you're seeing the monster, like what you see is what it is. That's all it is. Right? And you know what? At the, at the end of the day, the ability to take something seriously, take something as being real, as being true, as being important for what it is without the need for an explanation, without the need for all of that, that's something that is bitl. On the other hand, if something is going to be incorporated into my experience, there's a question of how does it fit in, right? It's a piece to a larger puzzle, right? When you have a piece of a puzzle, the edges have to fit the other pieces. It has to integrate, it has to fit in. If something, is, if something is important in its own right, how it looks, how it appears, how it presents itself doesn't matter. It itself is important, right? How it appears is unimportant. So I'll give you an example. What is the difference, more marriage advice, what is the difference between Dating somebody and being married to them. And committed to them. You're committed to them. Hopefully. Not necessarily, though. I have this big thing against commitment. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Why is that? Okay. What? Why is that? What's wrong with commitment? It's yeah. something that's of your doing. Sorry. It's, it's a way of holding control. In, 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 it, it's, it's a subversive way of maintaining control. I'll explain to you what I mean. Okay. Um, so you use an example where it'll be easier, then I'll move to the marriage and you'll see the point. Um, so I said my daughter was ill, she needed to go to the hospital. Okay. Why should my wife or I have taken her to the hospital? Why should we do it? We have a responsibility. Explain. What does that responsibility mean? You chose to bring her into the world. No. 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 Do you 
Well, first off, there's that. We can go a little more basic, right? She is a sick child. Her parents have a responsibility to keep her safe safe and take care of her. Notice why I'm putting the locus, the center of this whole thing. She, as a child, right, needs to be taken care of. And her parents have a responsibility to take care of her, right? And therefore, yes, as mature adults, we should accept that responsibility. And we should be committed to keeping that responsibility. But the duty does not come from our commitment. The duty comes from the fact that she needs her parents to take care of her. What's the difference? If something is your commitment, then in theory, what can you do? Give up the commitment. That's right. In other words, which is the right way of looking at it? Is the right way of looking at it, it's a parent, an idea. I mean, obviously real life things are comic. Sometimes a person physically cannot meet commitments. I'm not going to, you know, and meet responsibilities. But is, is the right thing to say, oh, the parent, a parent who doesn't take their sick child to the hospital, right? Um, is, and, and then says, well, that's because I've decided no one to be committed to taking care of this child, right? Is the issue that, A, well, once they've committed, they can't uncommit, or that the responsibility to take them to the hospital doesn't stem from their commitment? It doesn't stem from their commitment. The res- uh, reverse. Their commitment is a response to the responsibility. You have a responsibility. Are you committed to meeting that responsibility? It's not generating the responsibility. The mere fact that you're their parent, right? You see, that's a different way of thinking. It's a very important shift. Okay. Once you're married, do you have responsibilities to your spouse? Why? Because you're married. Because you're married. Because they're your spouse. A spouse is a relative. Interestingly, by the way, in halach, in Jewish law, do you, have commi- do you have responsibilities to your spouse after divorce? Yes. Yes. What are they? No. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's upon the end of marriage. After that. What? No. All the responsibilities... No, the end of marriage means all the super responsibilities end. Um, that, that's the dissolution of marriage. No, but there's an obligation in the laws of tzedakah to give tzedakah to your relatives first before strangers. So, Based on the verse, altis alam. Do, not, do not ignore your own flesh. Mm-hmm. Simply because divorce does not undo the fact that you're related. And therefore there is a certain level of family responsibility. And therefore, if a man has money and there are two people who need it, one is his ex-wife who he despises and one is a perfect stranger, he is luckily obligated to give his ex-wife the tzedakah first. <laughs> Just to illustrate that it's... it's there, in other words, a re, when a couple gets married, a new reality comes into existence. They are related. And that relation means they have responsibilities towards each other. Most of those responsibilities only exist during the state of marriage. Some extend after the state of marriage. doesn't matter. Commitment is then how do you relate to that fact? The fact that you decide that you don't, are no longer committed to those responsibilities doesn't make them go away. Does that make sense? Okay. So if I have to explain the importance of being committed to something, Right? That I'm not accepting that it itself has this significance. 
right? The, the, the idea that you have to, the, 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 so before, before getting married, right, there's a, the, there's a couple, they're dating, they're talking, whatever. At the end of the day, um, it's each person is looking at the other person and examining and deciding to what degree they're committed to moving this process forward. After you're married, the, since you're married, you have a responsibility towards each other. And that responsibility exists because you're related to each other. That's it. And, then, and, and, and the fact that a person needs to have that fleshed out and elaborate, it means they just don't get that basic point. Right? Think about how wrong it would be if a parent says, well, it really, can you like explain to me, like, what does it really mean that a child needs her parents to take care of her? Her parents have responsibility to take care of her. Like, like if someone really needs that explained, there's something wrong with them, right? Like, it should, it should be clear in its own right. So, Bittal, again, is this recognition of the truth for what it is. And the truth for what it is doesn't need to be expanded upon. It doesn't become more true because it's clearly explained. Okay, now let's talk about taste. Okay. Now the Hebrew word for taste is tam. Tam has another meaning in Hebrew, which is reason. What does it mean that something has a reason? Makes logical sense. Why do you have to put the word logical in there? Okay, and if it makes non-logical sense, it doesn't have a reason? It does. It can, have an emotion. It can make emotional sense. Yeah. Also. yeah. In fact, I would say, I would say that, 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 that adding logic there is a little bit misleading. Um, because the way, the way I would think about it... Every language has grammar, right? Now, if you were to study grammar, not about a particular language, but like how grammar itself works, right? This is, a, this is an aspect of the study of linguistics. So that's like an important thing for some people to study and to understand, right? But you're missing something, which is the end of the day, language is meant for what? People to communicate with each other, right? So you've abstracted kind of the technicalities of how it works to understand how it works. But that's the kind of thing in its own, and made it the kind of thing in its own right. Things make sense to us. We'll talk about what that is. If you try and figure out, okay, what kinds of things make sense to us? What kinds of things don't make sense to us? And I'm trying to abstract the rules out of that and talk about that as subject in its own right, then that's what we call logic. So like logic is to making sense like linguistic study of grammar is to the use of language, right? And therefore anything that makes sense to a person, you can come up with a logic that will accurately describe it. That's actually why in the study of logic there are different logics, just like there are different grammatical patterns that can be used. Like, so there's like a simple kind of a logic where something is either true or false. But 
There are many places where that kind of logic fails. Okay, um, what would be an example of something where it clearly fails to whether something is true or false? Something that fails. It fails like you like you couldn't use you can't say either true or it's false. Those are your only two options. What's an example of something where that just not doesn't doesn't it makes sense to us and yet that wouldn't be correct to say it's either true or it's false. Um, if somebody does something that's wrong, yeah, is it just simple to say it's wrong? It's wrong because no, could it be? It could, or could it be correct, or be more accurate to say like you have to actually kind of adopt a point of view. For instance, if somebody, if somebody, um. If somebody, let's use a simple, even a, like a more simple example, because I don't want to spend too much time on this. Let's take something like hot. Yeah, something is either hot or it's not. Yeah, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. So is my oven hot? Relative. Well, you see, now you get this issue of relative hot, right? And so, like having a simple true/false doesn't really work, and yet it makes sense to us. You need a more complex logic for that, right? See what I'm saying? Like, like logic, logic is all just abstracting what makes sense and trying to figure out the system of things making sense. And once you realize things make sense in different ways, you have different systems of logic. So adding logic doesn't really add anything. There's something called making sense to us. Okay, what does it mean that something makes sense to us or doesn't make sense to us? If it has a reason. <laughs> <laughs> or if it resonates as true. Well, it's just, it, how about if it just resonates? In other words, when things fit together in our minds, they make. Sense. When they don't, that's basically all it is, right? It's a very subjective thing. Like there's this there's this desire to like make it very objective, but it's actually not. All making sense means is that what you are relating to resonates with the rest of your psyche in some way, more or less. And you experience that resonance, and you're like, hmm, that verifies it in some way. That gives it validity in some way. Or you don't experience that resonance, and that either causes you to doubt it, or makes you feel like your sense of the picture is incomplete, and you look out, for, or so you either reject it in the first case, or look for something that will create that resonance in the second case. But it's, it's the pursuit of a kind of subjective experience. Right? So things either resonate, or they don't. And when they don't, either we dismiss them or look for something that will help them resonate. Does something become more true because it resonates with your mind? Has something become more important because it resonates with your mind? If you're holding on to something because it resonates with your mind, what happens if that something gets rid of that resonance, right? Something shows that it's not, it, does not so, it doesn't fit so nicely. Now your connection to it is weakened, right? Mm-hmm. So are you really connecting to the thing for what it truly is if, you're, if you have this need for it to make sense? If you have the need for something to make sense, what, 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 what's driving you is not it, but how it makes you feel. Right? How it makes you feel. How, and 
your connection to it is based on this other thing, like how well it fits with your mind. Which I'm not saying is a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a good thing. It's just, it's, it's now become a very subjective connection. You are not connecting to something in light of and for what it truly is in its own right. That's the only way that we can make meaning of anything in this world. That is true. That is the only way we can make meaning of anything in this world. I referred to how we started the class. Not everything do you have to make meaningful. Some things are meaningful in their own right. And so that's exactly the point. The taste, the tam, the reason is us making meaning of things. Bittal is about recognizing it has its own meaning. It doesn't need me to make it meaningful. It doesn't need me to make it true. And therefore, it doesn't become enhanced by it making sense to me. It's not diminished by it not making sense to me. So what are we seeing a theme here? Right? The bittal is... Right, the negation of the expansiveness, negation of the t- of of the taste. The reason is the ability to recognize, to connect, to appreciate something for what it is on its terms, as opposed to how it fits into your experience, how it resonates with you. That's the bittle. That is that sounds like nothingness. Very good. It is nothingness. I'm very happy that but you like, said that. I'm always nervous about the people that the people that think they understand this because those are the people that have it wrong. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. okay. We need an example because we don't have. We need an example. Okay. How do little children um, relate to their parents? And I make this very simple question that they're their parents. Do little children, like, you know, two, three, four, that kind of age, do little children have any conception whatsoever of what it means that this person is my father and this person is my mother? Like intrinsically, like they just I'm not asking you, like, 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 do they have, like, for instance, um, do they have a concept of, okay, a father is a person who conceived them, a father is a person who is supposed to play a particular kind of role. Do they have any, like, concept of that? No. no. Okay. Do they, f- do, is there, is their connection to their parents lacking because of a lack of a concept. They don't have a concept of what a father is and supposed to be or what a mother is and supposed to be. Is that in any way inhibit their connection? No. Okay. In fact, um, the children have this kind of sense Okay, I'm going to bracket now the fact that people can be misled because that's not helpful for the analogy. We could go into that, but it'll just take up a lot of time. The child has a sense of this is my father. Now that sense means something to them. So for instance, if the child has a sense, this is my father. For instance, I have a two-year-old. So I'll use him as an example. I am his father. What does that mean to him? 
I'm very important. And therefore, should we be, should, should I just abandon him and leave him? No. No. Right? So if I'm, if I'm going somewhere, if I'm going somewhere in a way where I'm going somewhere and coming back, then that's okay. But if I'm going somewhere forever, that's not okay. Um, if I'm gone, what, is, what does he wait for? For me to come home, right? If I'm going, right, somewhere, there's, there's, this, there's the idea that it, probably he should come with me, right? Now, is any of this like articulated in the, in the mind as concepts? Or these are just purely experiential? It's just like a sense, right? So for instance, um, and you go, now go a little bit older, older like, um, so I have a four-year-old, okay? If I were to ask my four-year-old, which I have, um, who is your tati, who is your father? He can answer that pretty clearly. If I ask him, what is a tati? What is his answer to that question? It's four. You. That's right. His answer is you. <laughs> and I say, well, well, what about, what about, and I mentioned one of his friends in class. What about, oh, so his tati is someone else. So, but what's a tati? Well, there's no abstract tatis. There's my tati and there's his tati. That's it. No, there's no, there's no fathers. Fathers are not a thing. You understand? There's no, he hasn't expanded upon the idea, right? There is just a reality of, which is that, there is this kind of a, 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 a person that is your father and there's this connection that one has with a father and that's just the way it is and that's not even something which is understood. It's something that there's a sense of recognition of and that recognition actually affects him. But it is not the same thing as an understanding. It's not the same thing as him coming to terms and making sense of things. There isn't anything to make sense of. So if I were to ask him a question, how do you know that I'm your father? What do you think his answer would be to that question? Because you're always there. No. Because you're my father. He has no father. No, so it depends on the age. The younger age is just reasserting that I'm his father. <laughs> and the older age is stop, you know, stop, stop, is they, my kids will sometimes say, stop doing shtuyot, stop, stop acting foolish. <laughs> but they, like, it's not even a legitimate question that deserves, like, it's, like, it's not, deserves, it doesn't compute as a question. It's not, it's not a question. It, like, I'm asking a question, like, how, so there's a concept called father, there's me, and how do you know that I'm, like, this is, it's like, if, if, someone, if someone were to ask you, like not in a class like this, they just walk down the street and they would just stop you, can I ask you a question? And you say, yes, because you're a nice person. You say, how do you know this is blue? I think most people would just like, look like, what? <laughs> like, what are, you, what, what, are you, what are you asking me? Like, you don't, right? I mean, how do you know it's blue? 
Now, I mean, you know, once you enter into philosophy class, you have to like, come up with an explanation, an answer, because you buy into the lie that everything has to be, you know, rationalized and justified. But no, like, what do you mean, how do you know that's blue? Like, like what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? Maybe it's not blue. We need independent verification of its blueness. Like, I don't know. Like, but it is blue. Right? No, so, like, 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 so the little kid doesn't have that. Right? So I'm, I want to, I'm describing that, that state of being. Right? So the, the notion of bittal is the recognition of something that is true and that its truth is its truth. Not... It makes sense to me. Not, I've expanded to envelop it into my experience, so therefore I'm in love, or therefore that, right? Not, it has, it fits into the larger picture of things. Right, now, that power of Bittal is a power of our godly soul. Our godly soul has a power of Bittal. Human beings have all sorts of powers. One of the human beings' powers is um, the ability to be calm and reasonable in dealing with a difficult situation. Yes, that's, a, that's an ability human beings have. Have you ever tried to do that when you haven't eaten for a while? Does it work so well? No. Why not? Right. In other words, you need, you, you need something that empowers you to utilize that ability. So even though that ability is not something, it's not like the food can do it and you need to get it from the food. The food doesn't have that power. You have that power. But the, what enables you to utilize that power, what turns that power from just being a mere aspect of your essential humanity into something that manifests in the way you live your life is due to the food that you eat. Well, your soul has this power of bittal. Your soul also needs to eat. If it doesn't eat, what happens to its power of bittal? It doesn't function. And so matzah is what strengthens this power of bittal. So the power of bittal, right? Bittal is not, it's not expansive, right? And it has no taste, it has no reason. But the idea is not the, idea is not the negation of those things per se. It's, we have to think of in the affirmative. What is it actually? Bittal is the power to recognize the truth for what it is and to let it affect you for what it is. To recognize the truth, to be connected to the truth for the tr- what the truth is, not for how you've reached out and appreciated it, how you've incorporated it, how it fits into your larger picture, how it resonates with you. To let the truth, to let, to, to, and the, the truth is the center and you're orbiting around it rather than the other way around. That power of the nisham, that power of the godly soul is strengthened, is fortified, is nourished by eating a matzah. So any aspect of our Judaism that requires us to have bittal throughout the year really depends to a large degree on the fact that we did the mitzvah of eating matzah. If we eat matzah, our godly soul has been nourished to have the ability to have bittal 
necessary for the coming year. And if we fail, God forbid, to eat matzah, then our neshama is malnourished and our neshama's ability to have that bittel has been compromised. Now, that's, I want to be pointing out something very important. We're talking about the godly soul's ability to have bittel. There's a separate question, which is how you relate to your godly soul. In other words, use an example. Every human being has the ability to... Most human beings have the ability to read, right? But willingness to read and ability to read are two separate things, right? Our neshamas have the power of bittel. As human beings, do I live my life in such a way to, la- to, to give my neshama space to exercise that ability or not? That is a separate question. So it is not the case that by eating matzah, you magically become bottle. It means that by eating matzah, your neshama has the ability for bittel, ready to use, fully nourished, and you as a person now have to choose that you want to actualize that power as opposed to suppress it and not use it. Now, the primary effect of eating matzah is that it connects us to God like all mitzvahs. The individual effect is that it specifically strengthens which aspect of our godly soul? It's bittel. And meaning bittel is the ability to connect to the truth, not to connect to the truth that I'm reaching out and appreciating the truth, I'm reaching out and incorporating the truth into my experience, that the truth makes sense to me, rather, to recognize the truth for what the truth is and allow it to govern me rather than the other way around. Now, I would like to point out the Jews were commanded to eat matzah before they left Egypt. In order to leave Egypt, what did they need? Bittel. Because what does leaving Egypt mean? It means to follow God wherever he takes us, not knowing what it's going to be like, having no sense of what is going to happen, right? Does a little child have to... Does a father have to earn their, the toddler's trust? No. Why not? He says that he should trust his father. That's right. He has bittle. Is that true per se, though? Because if you have a father who's not around or isn't like doesn't provide for basic needs, then the kid gets the sense that this is not my father. Right? Like, if you have a kid who's adopted, they're probably not going to see their biological father and instinctively know this is my father. They're going to know based on the fact that the father earned, like, so, the status of a father. So, two things. One, um, I prefer to keep the analogy overly simplified because it's an analogy. Sure. We could go into it. It's just, it's just overly, so, I'm going to answer on that level first. The... the the child doesn't need the father to earn their trust. There's a separate question, which is, how does the child know that this is their father? That's number one. And that is, and the way that would be understood in Chassidus is that there is an inherent sensitivity. Now, just because someone has an inherent sensitivity doesn't mean they cannot be fooled. And a simple illustration of this is the way we have vision. We are created by Hashem to see motion. We're created by Hashem to see motion. Not every creature can see motion. You do know we can see motion? Have you ever, let me give you an example. Have you ever, have you ever like been, um, your, your ability to see motion, like, 
I don't know, this gets a little bit... Our ability to see motion is, is actually separate. We have a separate ability. We can see color. We can see shape. We can see motion. These are actually different things, and neurologically, you can mess up one without messing up the other. Um, and actually, I think the field of range where we see motion is not as broad as the field of range where we just are light-sensitive, remember correctly. We only see motion in a narrower range. Um, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Motion is like movement? Motion is movement, yeah. Okay, so now, I'm moving this. You can see it moving, right? Okay, now, you can be tricked. I don't know if this is... It's not <laughs> big enough, right? Okay, does it look wobbly? Yeah. Is it wobbly? No. No, but that's a trick of how your mind perceives motion, right? Or give you... A, what? What? <laughs> it didn't work. It didn't work if you... You have a big... You have a trick. If it's big enough and you allow... Right? I don't know Okay. Okay, but as I don't, but you can see you can, you have to let it shake back and forth. Look, look, look. Okay, there's all sorts of optical illusions. My favorite optical illusion is called a video. What's a video where you see a still image and it's replaced by another still image? And if it happens fast enough, your mind is tricked into right to seeing motion. But are you actually seeing motion? No. Okay, so there's an important philosophical question. And I think the reason why I'm going into this is because this actually addresses the issue more directly than getting into complications of human psychology. Is looking at how a system can be misled or, or, or malfunction helpful for understanding what the system is supposed to do, what the system really is? And so there's two ways of looking at this. One is to say no, one is to say yes. Um, I think if you think about it, it should be pretty clear that, under, that if you want to really understand what a system is and what it's supposed to do, you should assume it's correct operation. If you want to understand how it does it, which is different, then looking at how it malfunctions can be useful. So if I want to understand how our eyes see, it's important to really understand why we can be tricked into seeing vision in a video, motion in a video if there's no actual motion there. Right, but it would be wrong for me to like say, well, well, if the mind can't really, the, the mind, the, the, when you, the fact that you're seeing a video, you see it as motion, but there's no other things, it means you don't really see motion. Or you do see motion, but there's a mechanism that can be fooled. Okay, and it'd be the same thing here. Whatever it is, and how Hashem created human beings that give them an intrinsic sense of father, um, and I don't want to make this a big issue, but they have a different sense of father than in, than mother. That can be fooled and corrupted and, and tricked and all sorts of things. But if we want to understand it as an analogy for something else, we should assume it's normal functioning. And it's normal functioning um, is that the child doesn't, doesn't have a sense that the father needs to earn trust. In fact, one of the difficult things where mother, one of the most difficult things for children that they go through is that they eventually come to realize that their parents are not as trustworthy as they thought. Right? We... we, we, we the basic stages of human development with parents is loss of trust and regain of trust, not gain of trust. There's no actual initial gain of trust. And that makes the regain of trust very tricky because the regain of trust is not to create a new trust to replace the old trust, it's to have a mature relationship with the old trust. In other words, to trust my father the way I did when I was an infant or a toddler, though trust my mother the way I did as an infant as a toddler, with the maturity of recognizing that they're a flawed human being. Not to create a new trust that they've and, and that whole thing has gone away. Um, and that does not apply to Hashem. That does actually. Say, does that that does apply to Hashem. Because you can't 
stop trying, I don't know, because when you stop trusting your parent, they kind of, in a way, have to, oh, okay. I don't know, though. I feel like that that's very human, and that's just not, like, Hashem can't do anything to make you trust him. You just need to trust him. No. Chassidus is very emphatic that a very that same pattern exists. Um, this is what we call um, very very similar idea. This is what we call a test. Uh-huh. A test. Yeah. Okay. A test is where Hashem has violated your expectations of what He is supposed to be like, and so you, the idea is you now have to regain trust, and that regaining trust can be creating an, a different kind of trust. And that's not the right way. The idea is to re- reclaim the old trust with more maturity. And that actually is like people go through that. And that's like a... Right, but I, so, so that, yes. But, with, but then with the parents, I, I don't know. Usually that's not how it works. Usually if like, you have mistrust with your parents, you're not going back to the exact same relationship and being like, okay, I'm just going to be okay with it. Usually there has to be a change somewhere in there. And with Hashem, there's no change. Well, I don't want to make arguments about usually because... It, but I would, I would say like this. Little children's trust of their parents comes along with a sense of infallibility. It also comes with a sense that my trust of my parents is because they're my parent, not because they have any particular talents or abilities. And then there's a loss of trust because we discover our parents are not infallible. And they proper thing to do is to reclaim a trust of my parents because they're my parents which does not necessitate them being infallible which is different than I trust the person because they've met certain qualifications of you know right and so the same thing with Hashem is that a person trusts Hashem and they've never encountered a test um, but they and they, but, but so the, but that trust in that, 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 that trust in Hashem um it's trusting Hashem because he's Hashem. And it, it carries with it a sense, I would say the corollary of infallible is, is not infallible in some philosophical sense, but infallible in my experience. And then Hashem is fallible in your experience, right? People, God forbid, suffer, right? People, all of a sudden Hashem fails to be the God that they expected him to be and play the role they expected him to play in life. And it turns out that at least... From our sense of what infallibility is, he fails to be infallible. And then the question, okay, so now do you, do you then build a different sense of trust that's based on what he X, Y, and Z does? Or do you go back to me trusting him because he's God doesn't depend on him meeting my expectations of infallibility. In that sense, the model, it, it's not the exact same thing because we're dealing with a subjective notion of infallibility, which is versus where parents are actually objectively fallible. But... Um, that that model does exist. I I think that's that's one of the things that um, there's a way there's a way in which like like people feel like they can believe in Hashem because they it there's there's an immaturity about it that they, be, they believe in Hashem they trust in Hashem they have this confidence in Hashem all of these types of things. And it also goes along with the sense that, well, of course, Hashem's going to make everything work out in the most wonderful, beautiful way. Mm-hmm. And when that doesn't happen, sometimes people, they never get back to the place of trusting Hashem because he's Hashem. Mm-hmm. 
that what ends up happening is that they 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 start to feel like Hashem has to earn their trust. And the, the danger with earning trust is that you're never trusting the person. You're never trusting them. Right? So I'll give, I'll give, you, an, I'll give you an example. Um, if, if you're an educator and some uh, student misbehaves and you say, okay, you're on probation, you could, if you, you know... And if you do X, Y, and Z, then you can stay you know, in our institution. Otherwise, you're out. And there's a popular thing to do. But let's think about that for a second. What message are you sending to that child? Your acceptance here is conditional on your actions. I mean, yeah, but there's another thing. Do I really think that you're going to... Do I trust you to change your behavior? If I really trust you to change that behavior, then what do I do? You change, change, right? And there, and if, and if you don't change, then you're out, right? Like this notion of like it's this notion of probation is like it's a little bit weird. Think about it in the criminal sense. Who do we put on probation? People that we don't fully trust to participate in society. Anybody who violates the rules of society is a criminal, right? So what's probation? I don't really trust you to be an upright citizen. Well, then what is being on probation? What message is that telling the person that you don't? You're setting an expectation, but you don't really trust them to meet that expectation. Like, it, it's, it, it's, it's, like, if you're trusting them, the trust should come from what? Not, like, I could either trust you because of your track record, okay? Or I'm trusting you because I trust that, like, you have certain capabilities fundamentally as a human being. You have certain worth is fundamentally as a human being and you have deep down certain desires as a human being and I'm trusting that you're going to bring those things out, right? And obviously if you don't fail to do so that I might have to take consequences but like that doesn't make the person any different from the person who's failed to meet those expectations in the past. Like there's something very, um, I don't know what the right word is, destructive of the person's sense that they're that they have the capacity to do something when your sense is, when, you, when they're being giving a sense, we don't really trust you to change. If we really trust you, we trust you. So then, I'm not saying there shouldn't be consequences, but like, why does that person have a different status? They're on probation. Like, it, like if you trust them to do it, so do it. If you don't trust them, then don't do it. Right? Like, if they fail, then you can give them consequences. Um, and we do that with Hashem all the time. It's like, oh, I'll, I'll you know, uh, if, if Hashem does X, Y, and Z, then I'll be very committed to him. Well, that means that you're not really committed to him at all, even when you're supposedly committed. You see what I'm saying? Like, it, it, there, there's, and that goes back to the idea is that the neshama has this ability to recognize Hashem for Hashem, but you can have that in a less mature way, and you can have that in a more mature way. I just point out that on Shavuos, there's a mitzvah to offer a offering of chametz, not matzah. Meaning that as much as we're talking about the power of bittel, right? And it's not expansive. It doesn't have taste. Those aren't, aren't intrinsically bad things. There's just a time for everything. Right? The ability to leave Egypt and follow Hashem is one of bittel. But that doesn't mean there's no place for things resonating. There's no place for expansiveness. Right? But 
there those things should not be the foundation of things. Those shouldn't be the, the those aren't the pillars things should be resting on. So w- would you say that um, like the Jewish people leaving Egypt, it wasn't that they, like it was because of like they it was just complete total trust without the expansiveness and without the reason, and it wasn't just because like we're slaves, so like, we have nothing to lose. Like, right, it was not that. Right, and tomorrow what we're gonna do tomorrow what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about two different aspects of matzah and how matzah actually occurred in stages. Um, we're gonna take this idea of bittel. We're gonna talk about two different kinds of bittel, and consequently two different kinds of matzah. And that we'll do tomorrow, um, and then we'll probably move on to something else after matzah. Because how much matzah can you do really? Thank <laughs> you.